Hey guys, welcome to episode 2 of Pacific North Weird. We made it! Sorry for the long delay, I kind of, uh, underestimated how much I would have to research for this, and also overestimated how well I am with, like, balancing my life. And it's been a couple, uh, crazy weeks, so that didn't help at all. Um, let's see, oh, some... What is it? Housekeeping? House cleaning? I don't know what other podcasts call it, but I'm just gonna do like a little pre-show notes, I guess. Um, so I realized that I forgot to introduce myself last time. I'm Trista. Uh, I'm 24. I've lived in Washington my entire life. I work at a dog kennel and a barn, and since I don't have any co-workers, I spend most of my time listening to podcasts about murderers and shit like that. <laughs> um, I guess that's really all you gotta know about me. And, well, another note about me is I either have, like, really early fall allergies or I'm getting sick where you might hear me, like, blow my nose or cough a couple times in this episode. It's fine if I just have to talk for a couple minutes, but, like, if I have to keep going, I run kind of out of breath, and I'm- I don't know, like, I just might make some gross noises, and I might have to stop and, like, gasp for breath a few times, so just- just deal with me. (laughs) So last week we talked about a disgusting rain coming down over the small town of Oakville, Washington. So this week, let's talk about one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in FBI and American history. As a kid, I would watch any made-for-TV movie, documentary, or show that I could get my hands on about this case. I remember me and my dad would watch just about anything, you know, like National Geographic Channel and History Channel, back when it used to be good. Um, I just remember that was like a really highlight of my childhood was watching that stuff with my dad. That and Bigfoot. Um, It really is the perfect true crime story in my opinion. No one innocent was hurt. The bad guy wasn't that bad by uh, bad guy standards and money wasn't stolen from a little old lady or other innocent victim. I'll skip the geography lesson on this one, because the entire Pacific Northwest area and more is involved. (coughs) Damn it, we made it like two and a half minutes, I'm sorry guys. So, on November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, a man referring to himself as Dan Cooper purchased a one-way ticket from Portland to Seattle for $20 cash. He made his way to C-18C on the Boeing 727 and ordered a bourbon and soda while he lit up a cigarette. It was a different time, guys. Also, that $20 ticket, damn. Different times, I was right. He was in his mid-40s, wearing a business suit, overcoat, brown shoes, white shirt, and a black tie. He carried a briefcase and a paper bag. The plane took off at 12.50 p.m. Or 2.50 p.m., sorry. Around 3 p.m., the man handed a stewardess a note. She took it and placed it into her pocket without even looking at it. The stewardess continued her duties, the man growing more and more restless. Why wasn't she looking at the note? She probably thought he was trying to slide her his number. Damn it. And then this is one of my favorite details in this case coming up, and you'll know why in a second. He motioned for her to come over. Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. (laughs) Which, I shouldn't laugh, that's scary. But I just love how it went from, like, ooh, super, like, covert mission, I'm gonna slide this, the, you know, so, like, it doesn't have to be said aloud, I'm gonna slide her this note. And then it just became, like, I have a bomb on an airplane. (laughs) What followed next would kick off a decades-long investigation, NORJAC, short for Northwest Hijacking. 
In the first five years following the heist, the FBI would consider over 500 suspects for the case. He motioned for the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, to sit next to him. She asked to see the bomb. And this is where me and Florence are two very different kinds of people. If some guy goes, I have a bomb, the first thing in my head isn't, show me the bomb, it's get me as far as possible away from the bomb. Which, on a plane, a little bit hard to do, but I don't know, I'd try to get myself into shrapnel zone and not like immediate explosion detonation zone, which would probably be a less painful death. But either way, I'm, I'm a runner, I'm trying to get out of there. <coughs> Sorry. Let me take a drink of water. I don't know why I keep apologizing. Sometimes you get sick. Alright. Where was I? Oh my god, I lost my spot. Okay, here we go. He opened his briefcase slightly, just enough to give her a glimpse of eight red sticks, four stacked on top of four, surrounded by wires. He then told her his demands. 200000 in cash four parachutes, and a fuel truck waiting to refuel when the plane landed. No funny stuff, or he'd do the job. Exact quirt. Exact quote? Quirt? Quirt's a kind of horse whip. I didn't just make that word up. I don't know why my brain filled that in anyways. Um. Florence, the flight attendant, left to the cockpit to, delay, to relay the instructions to the pilot, and when she returned, she found the man wearing a na or now wearing a pair of dark wraparound sunglasses. Which, if you've ever seen the D.B. Cooper sketch, I'm sure that everyone has. It's, like, a really famous uh, d drawing. Uh, he's wearing those big, thick sunglasses, which I say, bring them back. I know that the tiny sunglasses are in, but guess what? I'm not Billa Hadid, or however you say their last name. And me and D.B. are gonna bring back them dark wraparounds, like we just got out of the eye doctor. Like, we're an old person who wears them over our normal glasses. Thick boy sunglasses. I don't even know what I'm talking about now. The pilot informed air traffic control, who informed local and federal authorities of the situation. The 36 passengers on board were told that there was a, quote, minor mechanical difficulty, unquote, and that their arrival to Seattle would be delayed, which I haven't flown much in my life, so, like, researching this was hard because, like, everything airline-related was different back then, so you have to learn that first, and the little bit that I did know about flying, like... I, I've only been on a plane, like, twice, so I wasn't really in a great- I don't know why I decided to take on this challenge when I still don't really know what I'm doing at podcasting, but I'm giving it my best shot. Also, I'm gonna think about that every single time I'm on a plane now, or I act, I act like I'm always on a plane. If I'm ever on a plane again, we'll phrase it that way, and uh, they say there's a minor mechanical difficulty, I'm gonna be like, this is the end, there's a hijacking, he's got a bomb, <sighs> Anyways, so, and that their arrival to Seattle would be delayed. Authorization was given to Cooper, was given to give Cooper the ransom money, and all employees were ordered to go along with his demands. The plane circled for two hours to give local police and FBI the time to gather the money in parachutes. Crew and flight attendants interviewed said that Cooper remained polite and calm throughout the entire ordeal. At one point during the flight, he looked out the window and commented, Looks like Tacoma, mm -hmm. which is a move that I keep in my own personal repertoire for when I'm on awkward car rides with people I don't really know that well. You just look out the window and you go, hey, looks like Tacoma, or insert any other Washington town. So it works. <laughs> he also correctly mentioned that McCord Airfield, now Joint Base Lewis McCord, was a 20-minute drive from SeaTac Airport at the time. Another, it was a different time, guys. 20 minutes? 
I don't know. That's that blows my mind right there. This caused several crew members to wonder if he was local or at the minimum had been in Washington long enough to know the local geography. He ordered another bourbon, paid off his drink tab, and even attempted to give the flight attendant that he had terrified the change. He offered to add food for the crew to his list of demands. Good guy, Cooper. Good guy, DB. Why do I burp? I swear, like, my body saves my burps for as soon as I'm recording. Whatever. Whatever. As long as I... I'm trying to keep the gross noises at a minimum, but I really feel like I'm failing this episode. At 5.24, Cooper was alerted that his demands had been fulfilled. At 5.39, the plane landed at SeaTac. Cooper told the pilot to taxi the plane to a brightly lit yet isolated stretch of the tarmac and close the window shades. He didn't want police snipers to ruin his plans this far into it. A knapsack full of cash and parachutes were delivered to Cooper. In exchange, he allowed the 36 passengers and most of the crew off of his wild ride. And the uh, money was delivered to him by, um, I can't remember if it was an airline uh, employee or like a cop or something, but they wore plain clothes because they didn't want someone in uniform going up to him and him panicking and, you know, turning the situation into something that wouldn't be fun to talk about instead of just a fun little mystery. Um... As the plane refueled, Cooper relayed his plan to the remaining four crew members. They were to head to Mexico City, staying under 10,000 feet, and going no more than 100 knots. The landing gear was to remain down, and the cabin was to remain unpressurized. The plane took off again at approximately 7.40pm. They were followed by five planes until one ran low on fuel and had to turn back. Cooper ordered the crew into the cockpit. At 8pm, a warning light came on, indicating that the air stair system had been activated. The crew offered assistance, which Cooper turned down. The crew then noticed a change in air pressure, indicating that the doors had been opened. At 8.13, the tail end of the plane rose upwards, enough to require correction by the pilot. And this is the moment that people say, well, I'll tell you more why in a bit, but this is the moment where people think that he jumped because everything just kind of makes sense. You know, like the plane Mm -hmm. dipping up and even though no one was able to like visually confirm that that's when he jumped, like that's when... They think that he did. Also, Airstare was like, like I said earlier, I had to stop and Google stuff just because I didn't know what the hell that was. I was like, Airstare? Was stairs going onto an airplane? And I guess that that's how they used to do it. You used to have to get on stairs to get up onto your airplane and they're built into the plane. I'm thinking, this is what my dad told me and also like my brief Google search. Instead of the, uh, like, it's a hall, like a hallway ramp thing that you walk up now. Like I said, I only fly... I only flat on a plane. I only flat on a plane twice in my life. And I was like 14. Um, Maybe someday I'll get to ride a plane again. (laughs) Uh, At 8.15, the plane landed at the Reno airport. So just two minutes after they think that he jumped. Officials, police, and the FBI, or, you know, he could have jumped at any time, but they think that that's when he jumped. Um, Officials, police, and FBI surrounded the jet. They boarded the plane and searched for Cooper, but there was no sign of him on board. Not one of the people on the planes following him saw him jump or were able to name a location that he may have landed, which I think is really interesting because it's like, I mean, it was dark and rainy, but, you know, there were military, like, people on, uh, I think, like, two or three of those planes, and not one person saw him jump. It's just a little odd. The plane was immediately searched for evidence. Police recovered 66 fingerprints, his black clip-on JCPenney tie, which sounds like a read, but I just thought that it was an important little detail to throw in there, 
Um, it comes in, comes in later in the case. But I don't know, if you're gonna go, like, full-on plane jacking, why not have a real tie? I don't know. I guess maybe if it got caught in your parachute, it could, like, strangle you or something like that. But, I don't know. I'm a little bit disappointed by that fact. Uh, so they found fingerprints, his black tie, and two of the four parachutes. Interviews with everyone who had interacted with Cooper were done. One of the first suspects considered was an organ man with the unfortunate name of D.B. Cooper. On the, real, on the rare chance that someone who went through so much effort to pull off a heist of this level would use their real, actual name for the crime. He was cleared out, but over-eager media sources began to report the name of the hijacker as D.B. Cooper instead of the name Dan Cooper that he actually used. Hold on, guys. I have to go let my dog out really quick. I can hear her scratching. I'll be back. I'll just edit this out. Alright, we're back. They attempted to narrow down the, a search area, but even minor variances in the speed of travel and the weather would change Cooper's hypothetical landing point drastically. How long he decided to free fall before ripping his parachute's cord, if he even managed to rip the cord at all, didn't help the matter of pinning down the location. In a recreation using the same plane and pilot, a 200-pound sled was pushed out of the plane. The tail tipped upwards, just like it had it in the hijacking. From this, it was concluded that Cooper did likely most jump, did likely, most likely did jump at 8.13 p.m. Search efforts began in the area that the sled landed, the southernmost range of Mount St. Helens near the Lewis River. <coughs> Broken treetops, any plastic seen in trees, and even a skeleton that ended up being a teenage girl who was murdered were investigated. No trace of Cooper was found. That is, until a placard printed with instructions for lowering the uh, air stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter near a logging road near, Ca near Castle Rock, Washington. This was an area that hadn't been included in the search parties, but still along the route that the plane had took. In 1980, a boy camping with his family was playing along the Columbia River when he found uh, $5,800 in cash. The serial numbers had matched the ones previously released by the FBI. Because they do that so, uh, you know, if you find a bill and it matches, you're like, oh, well, he lived and he's out there spending it. It's a pretty common thing that they do, I think. Searches continued in the theorized landing area, but some experts think that the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption may have destroyed any remaining physical evidence. Which, that's something from, like, because I was born in 1994, so I didn't live through the Mount St. Helens eruptions, and that's something that I didn't even think about being a possibility, so that was kind of something fun that stuck out to me in um, the research for this. In 2017, volunteer investigators may have uncovered a piece of potential evidence. They had found what appeared to be a decades-old parachute strap. In August 2017, it was revealed that they had found an old piece of foam, possibly part of Cooper's backpack. In two 2007, the FBI released that they had uncovered a partial DNA profile from what had been left on Cooper's tie. They also revealed that Cooper had chosen the older parachutes out of the four he had been given, and for some reason... One that he chose had been marked as a dummy chute, used for classroom demonstrations and without a usable ripcord. It had clear markings saying it wasn't usable, and the FBI claims that it was included as an accident in the rush to gather them from a Seattle skydiving school. Should I quote-unquote accident that? <laughs> in 2009, 
a team of citizen sleuths made up of experts in their respective fields formed the Cooper Research Team. While nothing new was uncovered with the cache found, or his possible landing site, the team had access to technology that wasn't available when the crime happened. They found lycopodium spores on his tie, which had most likely come from a pharmaceutical product. They also found traces of bismuth, al aluminium, along with titanium, pure titanium. They theorized that Cooper may have been employed as a chemist or possibly an engineer or manager at a metal or chemical plant. It was later reported that the tie also had traces of rare earth minerals, cerium and strontium sulfide. Strontium sulfide, there we go. In the 70s, Boeing was working on a supersonic transport development project that used these metals. This combined with the crew's record or the flight crew's record of how well Cooper seemed to know the area caused people to wonder if he may have been a, Bo a Boeing employee or an alien. <laughs> It was theorized that Cooper's financial situation was desperate, as most people who pull off heists like these are, or he may have been a thrill seeker, craving the best adrenaline rush that he could think of. He had shown a high level of intelligence regarding technique and aircraft. The four parachutes he requested, for example, to make them think, to make them think that he might t take hostages and make them jump. This hypothetically ensured that all of the parachutes were in working order, which we know from that dummy shoot, they were not. FBI could have gotten someone killed there. The FBI, however, had their own view of the case. Don't they always? I don't know why I sound like I'm bagging on the FBI so much in here. <laughs> if I ever need you, FBI, please be there for me. We originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper, said Special Agent Larry Carr. We concluded after a few years this simply was not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night, in the rain, with a 200 mile an hour wind in his face, Wearing loafers and a trench coat, it was simply too risky. He also missed that his re reserve chute was only for training and had been sewn shut, something a skilled skydiver would have checked. He also failed to bring or request a helmet, chose to jump with the older and technically inferior of the two primary parachutes supplied to him, and jumped into a negative 70 degree wind chill without proper protection against the extreme cold. Even from the beginning, the FBI was skeptical that Cooper had survived the jump. Diving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, and in such terrible conditions, he probably never even got his chute open, said Carr. Of course, even if he did survive the landing, he was now deep in the wilderness, dressed in a business suit with money strapped down to him. Hypothermia and getting lost are concerns of even the most prepared Northwest uh, outdoor enthusiasts. Even if Cooper hadn't had managed to survive the jump, the question still remains, who was Cooper? Let's move on to some men who might have been, who, you know, are considered possible D.B. Cooper suspects. In 1972, another hijacking occurred, with most people believing it was a copycat. A man named Richard McCoy parachuted out of a plane with half a million dollars. He was captured three days later. He left behind way more evidence than D.B. did, and he was convicted. He escaped from jail and was killed in a shootout with the FBI three months later. In life, he was a Vietnam veteran former Green Beret helicopter pilot, and an avid skydiver. He never admitted nor denied to being Cooper when asked. Even the FBI agent who killed McCoy in the shootout stated, when I shot Richard McCoy, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. In 2007, Jeffrey Gray wrote a New York Times article and book about a man, Lyle Christensen, who came to him fully convinced that his brother, Kenneth Christensen, was D.B. Cooper, Kenneth Christensen had been a paratrooper whose first deployment came just after World War II. After he left the military, he worked as a mechanic and flight purser? 
a flight something, for Northwest Orient Airlines, the carrier that Cooper chose for his hijack. He had a taste for bourbon and bought a house not long after the hijacking, though it wasn't anything fancy. When his photo was shown to the one flight attendant still alive, she was unsure but did note some similarities. On his deathbed, Kenneth allegedly pulled his brother close and told him, There's something I need you to know, but I cannot tell you. The FBI, however, is not so sure. Christensen was shorter and thinner than the descriptions given of Cooper, and he was balding, though he often wore a toupee. In 2011, a woman named Marla Cooper suggested that her uncle, Lyle Doyle Cooper, or L.D. Cooper, uh, might have been D.B. It started with a gut feeling. He was tough, a veteran, and was familiar with the area. He had shown up to Thanksgiving that year looking rough, which he explained uh, from a car accident. Marla Cooper gave the FBI a guitar strap of LDs, but he was unable. But they were unable to lift fingerprints off of it. DNA pulled from Cooper's tie, however, did not match a sample from LD. Even though it wasn't a match, he has not been ru- ruled out of the official suspect lineup by the FBI. And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. If you want to look for yourself, you'll find dozens upon dozens of brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, nieces, distant cousins third cousins twice removed, who think that someone in their family might have been D.B. Cooper. I, for one, don't think that his identity matters that much. I don't want to know. I think this is a mystery better off left unsolved for the story's sake. As for me, I want to believe that that Cooper lowered the air stair and threw out a few parachutes in the money, hid from everyone searching that plane, and walked out with the money in his briefcase unseen. Smooth criminal style. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pacific North Weird. Aren't you thankful for all those annoying TSA regulations that exist now? I'll see you next week or next two weeks or whenever the next one comes out, guys. Thank you so much for listening.